Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of interesting entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. If you like the podcast, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. Thank you so much. Support for E2 is brought to listeners in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register, or incorporate your business and even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co. That's O-W-N-R.co. Don't forget to use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. And our newest sponsor, Iristel, offering better Canadian telecom solutions. With Iristel Business Solutions, companies can streamline their communications to reduce complexity and give employees better resources. Visit iristel.com slash solutions for more information. That's I-R-I-S-T-E-L dot com slash solutions for more. Today is my chat with Louis-Félix Belanger, co-founder and COO of the budding Canadian-based fashion eyeglass retailer Bon Look. What started as a business online selling direct has now grown into an omni-channel retail model with 22 stores, 300 employees, and growing. In this one, we talk about the business of eyewear, of course, and Bone Look start online before piloting a kiosk and rapidly expanding with physical stores, how to get store expansion right, other cool eyewear disruptors like Ollie Quinn and, of course, Warby Parker, and why listening to what your customer demands can be pivotal to a company's success. So without delay, here we go, my chat with Louis-Félix Belanger. So let's start at the beginning. So for those that aren't familiar with Bon Look, what is is Bone Look and what is the ultimate mission in terms of what you guys are trying to build? Yes, uh, great question. So Bone Look is an eyewear company, mostly focused on prescription eyewear. The mission of the company was really to start an eyewear company for consumers of eyewear, uh, by consumers of eyewear. What you have to know about the prescription eyewear space is that a lot of these companies are started by opticians and optometrists, which uh, are commonly referred to in in the field as uh, eye care professionals. And we wanted to uh, create a company that would deliver an experience and products that uh, would really give back some of the power uh, and, and some of the convenience in, in shopping to uh, the consumers because we felt that a lot of times the shopping experience and, and, and the, the end products that people were getting uh, wasn't perfectly in line with what customers uh, should expect and, and should want out of, uh, of buying prescription eyewear. So in the early days when you got started, I know that you're you're up to 22 or so boutiques now and you've got 300 plus mm-hmm. employees. We'll get to all of that. But in the first phase of Bone Look, were you just an eyewear retailer online? 
Uh, yeah. So when we started, we started. Uh, so the idea was really, as I said, to uh, redefine the, the the shopping experience. But uh, when we started, we didn't have much means, right? So uh, we started as an, an online company. For us, it was the the easiest way to bring value. Uh, and to reach uh, sort of early adopters and consumers, people that felt that they would want to have more than one pair of eyewear. They wanted an affordable, uh, fashionable piece of eyewear. It really started like that. And then it's as the volume started to grow, uh, we started wanting to address uh, more and more types of customers, more and more uh, complex customers as well. And so uh, we, uh, we have Involved and, and uh, have now uh, opened a lot of, of eyewear stores. We're up to 22 stores now. But yeah, it all started online. What's the key thing that people should know about how glasses are made traditionally versus how you're making them now? What people should know from the, the world of frames is uh, that uh, a lot of the uh, market is basically an oligopoly. Everything is, uh, is controlled by a few corporations that sign licensing deals with a bunch of brands. Uh, to manu- to manufacture uh, manufacture some frames that have the brand name on them, and so Chanel frames are not manufactured by Chanel, for example. Polo Ralph Lauren frames are not manufactured by Ralph Lauren. These two brands are are uh, manufactured by a company called Luxottica, uh, which has a big portfolio of brands. And so, what uh, people should realize is that uh, there is an incredible markup, I think, between. Uh, what the consumer ends up paying for their frame and the manufacturing cost. And this creates an opportunity for uh, companies like us and brands like us that are direct consumer brands to be able to manufacture a very high quality product at a very low price. And since we're all vertically integrated, put it in the hands and put it basically in, in our stores available for sale without a lot of the traditional intermediaries and all the licensing fees and things like that that get attached to the price of the product and deliver a, a very uh, high quality product at a, a, a very competitive price point. And so that's one of the sort of uh, problems that, uh, or challenge that Bon Luc has had is to really convince consumers that uh, our product is high quality, even though the price is so competitive, uh, just because what a lot of our, our bigger competitors are doing right now, uh, they're selling the product for a much higher price. But in terms of, uh, of quality, it's, it's about on par uh, as to what we offer. We'll get to pricing in a sec. I want to go back there. Uh, but you sure. mentioned the competition. In terms of your competitors, who are, say, the top two or three that you pay attention to? So I would uh, categorize the competition into uh, two big groups. You have the traditional players, which uh, did not start online, have a bunch of optical stores, are controlled mostly by ECPs, eye care professionals, sell a bunch of brands in their stores. But the the competitors we're really watching more closely are the uh, single brand stores that offer sort of a similar experience. Definitely, we're keeping an eye out for Warby Parker, which is a very big a uh, New York-based company that has a similar business model to us. Uh, there's a company called Ollie Quinn as well. There's a company called uh, also, sorry, I forget the name uh, right now. There's uh, there's Warby Parker and Ollie Quinn, and there's a, there's a third, uh, Bailey Nelson, sorry, a third company called Bailey Nelson out of Australia, which is arriving in Canada and expanding. So I, those thought, are I originally basic- thought Bailey was bought out by Ollie Quinn. Maybe I've got that wrong. 
No, it's uh, actually the um, the story behind that is that uh, uh, the people running Ollie Quinn used to run the Bailey Nelson stores in uh, Canada. And then there was, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm not privy to all the details, but from what I've heard, they, there was a, a disagreement or a dispute or, or they decided to part ways uh, for some reason. And now uh, all the uh, previous Bailey Nelson stores were rebranded as Ollie Quinn. But from what I understand, they're still ran by the same people that run them. Uh, but uh, the Bailey Nelson people actually started a, a Canadian initiative uh, by themselves and started opening up uh, their own stores as well. So you can tell that uh, this business model of a single brand with a competitive price point is really a business model that is, is catching on. And so those are the players right now uh, starting to occupy the space in, uh, in Canada and for Warby Parker, definitely um, mostly in the U.S. So... With respect to Warby, founded in 20, uh, I think it was 2010, 2010, 2011, it's around that time frame. By comparison, you know, they've got about 70 stores, they've raised 300 million or so uh, in capital, and they're sitting at almost a $2 billion valuation, So, which is astounding in five years. So, so not a bad competitor to, uh, to track. It seems like you guys are kind of the Canadian trailblazer in fashion frames. How closely are you mimicking Warby? And, you know, are they a, a role model for you or are they just kind of like a true competitor? As a general rule, uh, you start performing much better when you look at what you have and what you have to offer and how you can uh, differentiate, yourself, differentiate yourself. And so, uh, it's really for us, it's really not about uh, copying the big players out there. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of differences also between the US market and the Canadian market. The Canadian market tends to be a little more uh, stiff with uh, regulation when it comes to selling eyewear. The US market has its own challenges because it varies also from state to state. But there are really a lot of, of, uh, of differences between, you know, Warby in the U.S. and Warby in Canada. They've only started opening up stores in, in Canada right now. So we're paying attention to them. But uh, right now we're really focused on and I, I think that's the general rule of thumb. And if you uh, it, if you interviewed Warby Parker or, or, or people uh, over there, you would get uh, sort of a ge uh, generally the same kind of response. For us, the name of the game is to win over consumers that have been uh, having a, a sort of a subpar shopping experience at uh, traditional stores. And we really aim to rebrand the customer experience uh, uh, and, and redefine how you shop for eyewear and, and you know, make it a pleasurable experience. And we, we feel that uh, for me, the path to growth is not to beat Warby Parker, is to convince consumers to, that are... Uh, currently being served in, in traditional outlets to come to this uh, new model and, and to give Bonlook a try. Okay, so so let's continue with that. In terms of the in-store customer experience, Yes. what is the key difference between uh, what the traditional store experience is like and what a Bonlook experience is like? Sure. So you walk to into a traditional eyewear store, and I in, invite you to to do this for sure. A lot of times you'll find that the frames are uh, either locked away or unavailable for you to just pick up and try on. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first uh, sort of drawback is that you you can't uh, do some self shopping. 
uh, by yourself and, and, and try them out. Second of all, the, the pricing is very unclear. It's not transparent at all. Uh, if you do have access to the frames, to look at them a lot of times in these uh, traditional eyewear stores, uh, you will see uh, a little label with a price on it. It'll say $250, $300, but that's just the price of the frame. But if you go to an optical store, of, co of course, you need uh, prescription lenses put in them. And then to get prescription lenses, you have to sit at a little desk, traditionally with an optician, uh, giving you a price and a bunch of options that come on the lenses that uh, are not fully explained to you. And it tends to be very murky, uh, sort of like uh, going to the, you know, to the auto repair shop and, and getting told you need to do a bunch of work on your, on your car. <laughs> you don't really understand what's happening. Yeah. So that's what I would define as the traditional experience. Also, in the stores, a lot of times uh, you have multiple brands sitting on shelves. The stores have uh, their own aesthetics, the frames, the, the collections. Uh, each collection that they carry have their own aesthetics and it tends to be, you know, harder to uh, sort of figure out what you want. In contrast to this, uh, Bonlook, we try to have a, a much more open approach. So everything in the Bonlook store is uh, manufactured by Bonlook. We, we tend to try to limit the, uh, the number of SKUs and collections that we have to really curate the selection for our customers. So that's the, the first point. Second point is that we have very, very simple and transparent pricing. We have these little cue cards that we hand out to customers that really detail out uh, how it works in terms of pricing. It's really for us, it's to create an experience where consumers will feel that they've made an uh, affordable purchasing decision and will feel comfortable probably starting to accessorize uh, with their glasses. And so we, we tend also to encourage our customers to uh, purchase more than one pair since the, the, the price point is so affordable. You know, we, we try to appeal to a, a segment of their eyewear with different clothes that they're wearing or different situations. Uh, you know, you might want a pair for work. You want, might want a pair to go out during the weekend and things like that. And so that's how uh, we, we try to differentiate ourselves. Very transparent, very open pricing, very competitive prices, very fashionable also, and also a, a very stress-free and, and open shopping environment where you can try on the frames either virtually on the website or in store nothing is locked and also placing your order is is a very simple process for us got it i'm curious to understand how you get it right with respect to hiring in-store associates who can represent this whole experience and represent your brand the way that you'd expect what's the process to get the right boots on the ground to ensure that all of that happens the way you want it to Sure. I think it, it really comes down to communicating uh, internally, your internal communications and, and your training that you give to your employees. A lot of times what we found is that most employees really want to do good by their employers. They, they really care about the job they're doing. Everybody wants to do a good job. But what's, what tends to be tough as you're growing, and, and we've grown so fast, and it's, it's always something that we're continually improving, is really the challenge for us is to find a way to really communicate the values of the company, why we're in the business, what we want to offer to consumers, uh, and, and how to approach them and how to serve uh, consumers. And so that's, that's uh, really been the, 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 the challenge uh, with uh, a growing retail team is to make sure that we can grow fast, but still not sacrifice quality of, of personnel and quality of training 
while we deploy our network of stores. Got it. Okay, so so going back to pricing, transparency and pricing is a big theme, a key differentiator for you guys. Things have drastically changed in the industry, let's say in the last five years with respect to pricing for, for frames. People are starting to realize and understand that they, they simply don't need to spend right five, six, seven hundred dollars on prescription glasses. From a business side of things, in terms of your average order size, what is it now and how do you boost margins or boost average order value? Is it what you said about a customer coming to the store and buying, say, more than one pair? Do you bank on that customer coming in and buying two, three, four pairs at a time? Usually for us, uh, so there's there's actually two parts uh, to to, uh, to your question that I, I would see in my answer. First of all, uh, when we started opening up our network of stores, what we realized is that it's not everyone, and, and we knew this, but uh, really it, it really got confirmed when we started opening up stores. It's uh, buying eyewear online is is really something that is uh, easily uh, done and and easily available uh, to anyone that has a a prescription that's not too complicated. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that have either very high prescriptions or uh, a medium uh, type of prescription, you know, or the morphology of their face tends to be uh, a bit of a challenge for them to buy a pair of eyewear so the trying on experience also is is uh, is also a challenge so for us we've really see a we've really seen a great boost in terms of average order value repurchase rate and and all those uh, great uh, sort of uh, statistics for uh, consumer loyalty when we started opening up stores uh, to be able to serve customers and 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 really serve them better and and give them better advice and and give them more tools to to aid in their shopping experience. So for us, that's that's really the reason why we started opening up stores is to really, uh, it's because our customers were demanding it. And if you do listen to what the customers demand, then you tend to have a positive response in all of those stats, like average order value and things like that. At the same time, I must mention that for us, uh, efficiency tends to be a, a, a primary concern because we do want to stay competitive in terms of pricing. And like I said, we started the company uh, for consumers, by consumers. So uh, we always want to make our price point. You always want to keep your pricing at a point where uh, it uh, it stays competitive and it offers great values for your consumer. And so we've been uh, working really hard internally as we as we grow and as we deploy to make sure that we're always uh, using very efficient order fulfillment techniques and very efficient ways to serve the customers so that we can bring a lot of value and put a lot of value in the hands of the customers. So for us, it's really been working really hard to make sure that we streamline all of our processes and make sure that at the end we deliver a product in the hands of a cust- uh, of the customer at a very competitive price point. Okay, so I want to shift gears uh, going back to the store expansion. Yeah. At the beginning, when you went from online to in-store, you know, it, it seems like you had a very calculated approach. You, you opened a kiosk in Montreal, small kiosk, before rolling out or blow, blowing the roof off, let's say, capital expenditures yeah. with respect to store expansion. Did you get the store rollout thing right? And what lessons have you learned that you could share with entrepreneurs who might be thinking about going from online to physical store? Sure. 
So yeah, I think it's a great point that you point out. We started very small. We started with a test and we had been thinking about opening a physical uh, retail location for a very long time. Being a, a Canadian company, not having as much uh, capital as uh, you know, a, a large uh, competitors like Warby Parker that raised a lot of money, we really didn't want to spend too much to do our first retail test. But we, we also, at the same time, we knew that we needed to uh, do at least uh, the minimum to bring uh, a good shopping experience to uh, the consumer. So we started with a very small kiosk that would be able to serve maybe three or four customers simultaneously with a, a, a good shopping experience. And, and it really started very small. And the idea for us was we can sustain a small store and, and see if it can become, a, become a, a profitable proposition. And we quickly learned that uh, the stores not only was very profitable, the store was not only was very profitable, but at the same time, the kiosk layout was, was uh, starting to be problematic because uh, we were able to drive so much traffic to this kiosk, so many people to this kiosk that we were actually degrading the, the shopping experience just because the, the kiosk was too busy and we weren't able to serve each customer well enough when they were visiting the kiosk. And Good so problem that, to have. Yes, that was a great problem to have. You're right. Uh, so once we, we figured out that uh, having a physical uh, location really worked well, the next step that we did and that uh, people often don't see is we didn't really rush into opening a bunch of stores. We actually spent a lot of time really thinking about what the retail footprint should look like for a store expansion. So uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what types of stores we wanted to open, where we wanted to open them, and really give ourselves a set of guidelines that would guide the expansion. And we really didn't want to reinvent the wheel with every store opening. And so that once we did that and we really figured out how uh, we wanted to have that, we sort of had our marching orders and it was much easier to look forward to an expansion and, and open up a lot of stores. Now, having said that, even though we, 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 we have our guidelines and we know what stores to open, after that, it becomes a discussion with, uh, with the landlords. And in Canada, we, we, we tend to open stores and malls right now. In Canada, there are maybe three or four uh, big landlords that own malls. And it, it really becomes uh, an opportunistic expansion where you have to look at the, what uh, retail locations are available and then uh, which one should you pick and how do you evaluate them? And so that's, uh, that's really the next step. But I think you have to nail down your, uh, your retail setup first before you can start thinking about an expansion. You have to have the basics of, you know, how big a store I need, uh, how many employees, you know, where should I be, how much should I pay in rent, uh, all of those basics. If you don't have that figured out, it's very hard to do a very rapid expansion uh, like we did. Do the landlords ask for that? I mean, they, they must do their homework on you too to make sure that they're leasing to somebody that knows what they're doing. The landlords definitely try to manage who they're leasing out to because they don't want a company that uh, does a rapid, a rapid expansion, but then also after you know a period of time starts closing stores prematurely. So landlords are very sensitive to to lease out to brands and, 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 you know, companies that will open stores that reflect the image that they want to have in their individual malls. How important is the, okay, so I'm going to just guess Cadillac Fairview and Rio can, 
uh, are two sure. of the big names. How important is the relationship building with respect to, you know, say say you've got a, a store in a mall that's owned by RioCan and you want to expand. How important is the relationship that you build specifically with RioCan and are you like whining and dining and, and nurturing relationships on a direct sort of one-to-one level working with senior executives there? Like, what does that all look like? Yeah, I think it, you know, it's a, definitely, there's a, there's a lot of relationship building. You just want to make sure that they're aware of who you are and what you're doing, but at the same time, not, nothing beats results. Uh, yeah. A lot of times all the, uh, all the stores, uh, all the malls, they, they ask uh, every store to publish uh, their numbers in terms of sales and things like that. And so you just have to make sure you're able to deliver the results and, uh, and, and contribute to the success of the mall. If your store is performing well and selling well and, and driving results and delivering numbers, you know, the word will get around. And so there's, there's kind of a snowball effect, if you will, if you start and you're performing well. But, you know, at the, on the other end of the spectrum, if, you, if your stores start to underperform and things are, are not happening you know, even if all the relationship building in the world will not uh, help you to keep uh, strong retail positions. Uh, malls have targets that they want to perform at. Uh, they're very proud of their dollars per square foot sales uh, that they report every year. So each each retail location is trying to boost uh, the amount of sales that they do per square foot in the mall. Mm. And so you have to do your part to contribute to their goals. Uh, and if, if you're if you're able to show that you can deliver, then, you know, good things will happen for you. Now we we've started, you know, with 22 stores. We're in Ontario. We're in Quebec. We're going out west. Uh, we have some some deals uh, uh, signed uh, out west with uh, with some malls. The Bonlook name is starting to be a lot more known for uh, realtors. Have you had any store openings that were failures? You always have some stores that are harder to ramp up, uh, is what I would describe. Mm. But we're still, it's still very early for us in the game. And, and you have to, to be patient sometimes. You have stores that are that open that are absolute successes day one. You know, month one, you, you know, second month, you know that the store is. Uh, profitable is going to become a profit center and it's going to be a profit center. Uh, you have other stores that uh, even when we signed the lease, we knew it was going to be sort of a, a long a long and slow uh, ramp up just because the mall was either transforming himself, itself or, or evolving. And so it really each location has its own little story. But for us, we spend so much time uh, evaluating the spots, and and uh, we only go with uh, with spots that we feel fairly confident, very very confident that they will end up performing, uh, you know, in 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 the short to medium term. Okay, interesting to get to get that landscape. I want to ask you about innovation. So line extensions sure. as a topic. Have you guys thought about introducing things like? contact lenses online, models like Hubble contacts in the US who have introduced subscription plans and automated delivery for contact lenses. Like, is any of this a consideration? Yeah, we've uh, contact lenses. Uh, we talk about it maybe three or four times every year to see if we should bring it in uh, or not. Uh, right now, what's happening is that the margins uh, when you sell contact lenses tend to be not very high. Uh, companies like Hubble have their own challenges to deliver uh, a great customer experience. So far, we've stayed away from it. I think if we do end up offering contact lenses, it'll be right now, 
if we do end up offering contact lenses, in my view, it, it'll be because our customers demanded that we sort of offer this as well and that it adds convenience to them and it, it builds consumer loyalty. But for the foreseeable future right now, I don't see us sort of moving into that space and trying to innovate in it, and which is why I think we've stayed away from it. We went into retail when we really felt we could innovate. Uh, we started the company when we really felt we could innovate. And so in terms of contact lenses right now, we don't have the feeling that we can innovate and, and, and create a, a very big difference. And so we've stayed away from it. Got it. The social media stuff, I want to ask you about celebrity influencers and your positioning on Instagram. You guys are very active on Instagram. And I'm curious to know about your experience with respect to building a unique fashion brand with the help of Instagram celebrity types online. What do you suggest for entrepreneurs as it relates to this? You know, for us, social media has really been a key driver of our growth, for sure. I think it's uh, it's been a, a great tribute, tribune for us to really show the world what we're about and, and try to collaborate with people where we felt uh, shared our, our aesthetics and, and our, our, you know, our desire to, to be fashionable as a, as a brand. And so it's, it's been a, a great way for us to, to expand. It's also a great way for us to engage with consumers and, and really start a conversation. So many people post selfies on social media and so many people, you know, wear their, their glasses every day. And so it's a natural fit for us uh, to really be present on social media and engage with our consumers because every time they post a selfie and they wear our frames, they're really, you know, even without knowing it, sometimes promoting our product. And so if we're not out there sort of um, encouraging this or, or trying to manage it, uh, we're really missing out. We've taken it a, a step further with uh, design collaborations where we've, we've signed uh, exclusive partnerships with uh, some uh, influencers, people that have either a strong reputation in the media or uh, a strong following on social media and, uh, and designed a product that was tailored to their unique style and, and really offered it. So that's really been also a way for us to, uh, to really grow as a brand and, and stay sort of connected to our, our end consumers. So that's that's really, social media is a very powerful tool. I think it's it's for uh, emerging companies and uh, aspiring brands, it's, it's one of the first places to go to because you can really start uh, going out there with, with little or no resources. And so when you're getting started as an entrepreneur, you're always looking for these uh, sort of uh, low cost ways to get your name out there. Can you give a, an example of a celebrity partnership influencer slash partnership deal that you've done and what that looks like? Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the recent ones uh, that we did is we signed a, a partnership with Tessa Virtue. Uh, Tessa Virtue is, uh, of course, the uh, Canadian Olympic figure skater that won the gold uh, at the, just the, the Olympics that took place uh, this winter. So she's, uh, you know, a great Canadian star. She was uh, sponsored by Air Canada. She was named athlete uh, of the year. She was the flag bearer with uh, with Scott Moyer, her partner, at uh, at the Olympic, at the opening and closing ceremony. So uh, we approached her. Uh, we really uh, talked about what her personal style was, and we released a collection of frames that was uh, tailored after her. 
for us, it's a great opportunity to showcase, you know, a great Canadian athlete, somebody that has an incredible style, a great personal style and, and a great aesthetic. And for her, it's it's a great way to uh, for for her to get known, really sort of uh, start building a, a reputation and some experience outside of uh, of her professional sport, which tends to be important for these uh, these athletes as well. So that's that's one example that we did uh, uh, more recently. We've also done some lesser known personalities, bloggers that uh, that had a very uh, large following, TV personalities in uh, in Quebec. Uh, we've done also a, a, an actress out of Quebec as well. So we do a lot of these design collaborations with, uh, with, with influencers. How many, so the, on the smaller scale, the bloggers that have followings or whatever, what is the process to seek out a potential under the radar blogger influencer type? Like, do you just look at how many, like, do you have a threshold for, you know, how many followers they have to have in order for you to approach them for a potential deal? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a whole sort of science behind it that we keep improving and tweaking. But really, for us, it's it's uh, it's the way it would be like in the regular world. I think you want to in, in the just the everyday life uh, that you have, you want to associate yourself with uh, uh, people that do have influence and do have sort of a, an audience. Positioning yourself in Montreal in the world of fashion seems like it would have its advantages, at least in the Canadian market, uh, given that at least anecdotally, it, it feels like Montreal is probably the most fashion forward market in the country. Are there advantages being in Montreal that, that you see as distinct or different? And what would you say are the disadvantages, if there are any? Yeah, so definitely in terms of advantages, I think Montreal offers a very creative uh, workforce, very fashion forward. There's a lot of fashion companies that are based here. So there's really a great pool of talent and people involved in, in, uh, in creating great fashionable items, either for just traditional retail, shoes, even eyewear. Montreal really has a, a that uh, that aspect nailed down at least for the Canadian market for sure. Then uh, also there's a lot of great technical talent. We do like I said we we try to innovate a lot. So there's a lot of logistics and and computer science and IT work that comes into making uh, everything at Bon Look happen. And there's a lot of talent uh, also in in that field. Uh, it is very competitive like anywhere. Uh, you know these these great talents are are hard to find, but uh, that's that's another uh, great aspect with Montreal. Some of the difficulties or challenge uh, from Mont- uh, that come from being based in Montreal, I would say, are regulations. It uh, um, the regulation for selling eyewear tends to be a little more complex in uh, the province of Quebec than the rest of the Canadian provinces. So it does have its own uh, set of unique challenges. So that's been something that's really hard. That's been really hard, especially at first when we started the company. Uh, but now that we're expanding, it's uh, our experience with uh, with regulators and, and how to deal and, and structure your company so that it's, everything is, is on the up and up and legal is, is really proving beneficial when we enter new markets. So that's, that's a great advantage. It's interesting. I've had recently several, I don't know, several, at least a few sibling founder combinations of entrepreneurs. Okay. I know that you and your sister yeah. are co-founders in this business. Mm-hmm. What is it like to run and scale a business with your sister? 
I think it's a, honestly, it's a great advantage. It's like having uh, somebody that uh, you don't have to sync up with too often to really uh, be sure of how uh, they'll be thinking or how they'll react or what they'll cover. Uh, so it's really allowed us to separate our uh, spheres of responsibility a lot more easily than you would have with, a, I think, with another type of, of co-founder that wouldn't be uh, as closely related to you. And me and my sister, uh, while uh, even though we're from the same family, we have very different uh, interests and skill sets. And so it's, uh, it's really been uh, beneficial for us to, uh, to sort of work together and tackle uh, the growth uh, and, and, you know, the expansion of the company together. And also it, it just brings, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of, of trust that comes from having a business with your sibling. You, you know, we share the same family. We come from the same roots. I know her very well. She knows me very, very well inside and out. So I, it's, it's very hard for me to phantom or, or imagine a situation where, you know, we would, we would have a, a, a very severe breach of trust that would happen, you know, in a situation at the company. Have you had to navigate challenges between one another as you've scaled up? Well, it's always, I think, as you scale the, uh, the company and if you're growing rapidly, things will happen. You won't always see things uh, eye to eye. And so you need to have, I, I think we've certainly developed a, a very great way to hash out and flesh out, you know, uh, disagreements or 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 any anything that can, that can arise, you know, there's always going to be uh, disagreements. There's always going to be situations where we don't see eye to eye. But I think that over the years uh, that we've been to, in in this business together, uh, we've sort of mechanisms to really diffuse those situations. Uh, come to an agreement and, and really move forward. And and since that's really important for both of us, it really hasn't been uh, too hard, especially lately, to really see eye to eye on things and move forward. So what's next for you guys? I mean, the natural sort of assumption for me is that the U.S. market probably presents an extremely viable and attractive expansion option. But besides that, is there anything that you guys are looking at in terms of what's next? Yeah, so right now we uh, our retail expansion is keeping us uh, really busy. Uh, we're at 22 stores. We want to scale uh, to 50 stores within the next two years, and then after that, we're certainly looking at uh, expansion options uh, to uh, to start tackling uh, other markets uh, than the Canadian market. Our top priority right now is to march west. In, in terms of the store openings mm -hmm. and, and really have a Canadian coverage. But the international markets are definitely also a, a source of focus for us, and, and we're looking at that. At the same time, we're also constantly innovating in terms of how we process orders and fulfill orders and just the logist logistical side of things. So we're looking at a lot of uh, creative ways. I think the, the retail expansion is one axis where will be expanding the the online sales as well is is another uh, place where uh, we're, we'll be looking to expand but we're even considering options like b2b uh, enterprises and and really uh, take some of the things that we're doing internally and start offering it to to other uh, companies and 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 trying to see if if we can expand the uh, uh, gain some growth and expansion through uh, those avenues. That's interesting. What, what would the B2B expansion look like, if you can share? 
Yeah, I, well, I think we've developed a really unique and, and interesting way to uh, scale up a, a retail operation. And I think a lot of, uh, of companies that, that operate in our space would be very happy to have sort of this uh, infrastructure to help them serve customers. And we certainly realize that uh, retail, uh, whether it's optical or, or any type of retail, is not a winner-takes-all market. People will want to uh, have diversity and choices, but I think uh, in terms of logistics and how to fulfill orders, how to serve customers, and how to you know uh, get the, the the pair from uh, you know from the order placement to deliver the delivery of the customer, there's a right and a wrong answer, and there's a, a, a great way to do it, and there are some less good ways to do it, and we really feel that we're starting to develop a, a unique uh, know-how. Uh, in in how to process customer orders uh, that that could be uh, beneficial if if uh, we started offering it to other people much like if you will like Amazon started offering their fulfillment services to other businesses when they started getting really big kind of in the same uh, same vein yeah a lot of lessons to be pulled from Amazon certainly um, for sure approaching a trillion dollar market cap. Okay, in the last few minutes, where would you like to point listeners to? And I know that the Quebec market is a big one for you. So please give us all the details of where people can find you in terms of online and in store, both in French and in English. Sure. So our website is bonlook.com, B-O-N-L-O-O-K.com. We're in all the major malls in uh, in the tr- the GTA area. Uh, we're also uh, very present in uh, the Ottawa area. Et pour les auditeurs du Québec, notre site web bonlook.com. Uh, on peut nous trouver dans la région de Québec, dans la région de Montréal, à Trois-Rivières et uh, dans l'Estrie et dans la région de Gatineau. Uh, et un bonjour à tout le monde. This has been an amazing chat. Lots of good insights. So thank you so much. Thank you and uh, have a great day. All right. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to you in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register, or incorporate your business, or even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co. That's O-W-N-R.co. Use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. 
Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for The The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Electric Acid. 